going to get started. Awesome. So glad everyone could join us on this Friday. Woo! Fridays are the best. Love that. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, so got a great speaker today. He's uh, been around the block a few times. I know I had a couple conversations with people. Really pumped to see uh, Brian Belfort uh, speak with us. So let's give him a hand here. Yes. Thanks, guys. So uh, Brian is, uh, is an interesting character. He uh, got started early in his career before he'd even graduated. We were talking to someone up here in the front row, TD, yeah. who started a business in college, but he started two uh, and sold one, I believe, before uh, leaving school or right after school? It was right after right school. Right after school. Yeah. Uh, he has uh, raised uh, capital and worked in venture-backed businesses. Uh, most recently, he was at HubSpot, where he was VP of Growth. And uh, he, I think he has uh, a new venture on the horizon that he's already mentioned. So uh, I don't think he has anything to say on that quite yet. <laughs> but uh, we'll try and poke him, see if we can get some information out of him. So uh, again, super excited to have you here. So welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, I'm really interested in this idea that you go to college, and as soon as you're in college, you're like, I got to start a business. What yeah. is going through your mind when you get to college, and you're like, I, I need to start something. I need to create it. Or was it just this sort of organic thing that happened as you were in school? It was kind of an organic thing. So the, the funny thing was is, you know, like I've reflected on this like kind of many years later, but uh, even before college, I was starting businesses. My first business, legit, where I actually got like some real money in the door was uh, this like leaf and lawn business back in high school. Like I basically... Uh, yeah, one of my buddy's dads bought like this thing that acts as like a giant vacuum cleaner to put over your lawn to suck up the leaves, and I was like, we could probably make a business out of that thing, and uh, and so that's what we did for a couple of years in, in high school, and it just, I don't know, it just kind of came naturally. I was always kind of looking for these opportunities on uh, on like how to do something. I don't know, I don't really know where it came from. Both of my parents were were teachers, so it wasn't like either one of them were entrepreneurs, but. Uh, it was just kind of inherent, and I think in school, um, you know, I went to the University of Michigan and uh, was having a lot of fun, but uh, at the same time, I was kind of pretty bored with my classwork. So, uh, uh, so yeah, so I basically had, uh, you know, one of my buddies came to me with this idea at the time, uh, which was uh, he had seen Friendster at the time, and he was like, hey, I think it would be really cool if we did this just on our campus sounds pretty familiar uh, but uh, and, uh, and that's kind of where that's kind of where that whole thing that started and we just sort of organically thought it was a cool idea and we wanted to uh, do something more than what we were kind of doing in college which was pretty anti at the time I mean look I was I grew up right outside of out of Detroit and the plan in Detroit when you grow up when I grew up there was you uh, uh, you got into a good state school, got an engineering degree, went and worked for one of the big three car companies for 40 years and retired with a good pension. Like, that's, that was what we were supposed to do. And uh, Like a good state like uh, Michigan State as opposed to Michigan? <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, uh, it was, yeah. And so, uh, you know, it was pretty counter, uh, you know, it was just, there wasn't like a really vibrant entrepreneurial community at the time. I think it's gotten a lot better. Uh, and uh, I've always wondered why I just like that, that path just never felt right. And I'm glad it never felt right. Because uh, that, that path obviously didn't end up working out over a long period of time. But I think a, a lot of founders just 
they they found great things because they have some kind of authentic connection with this, with the idea, with the concept. Not necessarily because they're like masters of business opportunities. They just kind of see this this thing that they want in the world, and they they figure out a way to make it happen. And it's right. hap I've been lucky enough to have that happen a couple times. And we were talking briefly about uh, the Midwest. Uh, I'm actually from Minnesota in the Midwest, and uh, uh, Zerb has actually had quite a few people from the Midwest. I think there's a, <laughs> uh, Midwesterners have an affinity for each other. Yeah, uh, we run around. Yeah, together. I was going to say, so it's, it's not exactly like you said. It's not like the hub of you know, technology. So what do you think it is in the, the qualities of the Midwest of, of people you run into that uh, um, maybe align with some of your vision of what you, you see in the companies you work with or the people you work with? Uh, just like, you know, I've, I think as my career's gone on, I think I've realized, uh, uh, like, I've just gone a lot deeper on this concept of, uh, like, authenticity. And, um, and I don't even know really how to describe it. It's kind of one of those things that you know it when you see it. Even, you know, my best angel investments have come out of situations where, you know, the, the person, the founder, is just, like, is just just an extremely authentic person and has an authentic connection with this idea and he has right. an authentic connection with this co-founder and and it's something about the Midwest and is where there's just like it breeds like very authentic people uh, and uh, and um, and so I think that's why we just end up uh, you know even even my first venture back company Viximo we didn't even realize it but uh, would our first out of our first eight hires we were sitting around lunch one day and we realized seven out of eight of us were from the Midwest, and we, it's not like we had planned it or on purpose, it was just like, it, we kind of all had this very personal, authentic connection with each other that made us such a, like a great team, and it's something about the Midwest that, that just kind of breeds that, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I agree. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I think that's interesting about your career path, you've, you've started a lot of businesses uh, with co-founders, uh, most recently you're working at a, uh, you know, a larger company um, on a specific product. Um, one of the things I've, I've read in some of your materials is just sort of how you work in a system and kind of thinking about the greater uh, scope of like how people are working together with the work that they're producing. Um, a topic at Zerb we, we've been really focused on is leadership and understanding sort of how leadership drives um, your agenda, drives some of the things you're working on. But, you know, I'm kind of curious in your thinking uh, to this audience, the differences between founding companies, leading uh, initiatives, and, and, and managing. There's all of them overlap in some capacity. Yeah. But I think they often get confu confusing as to when you're doing one or the other and, and what it means to the overall success of the projects you, you perhaps are working on. Yeah. I mean, I think it is a complicated uh, subject because of what you said. You know, I, I picture kind of this Venn diagram with these three circles, and they all overlap to a certain degree. And I think the second reason is, like, there's... Uh, I take the leadership circle out of that, right? There's very different styles of leadership. Uh, there's the Steve Jobs on one end of the spectrum, and uh, I, I don't know who would be on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe like you know Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn, who's a sort of this just very compassionate person. Um, both very different styles, both unbelievably successful. And there's multiple examples of both of styles, and so the different styles can be successful and. Uh, and so it's not like there's, you know, for each one of those circles, there's like one ideal way of leading or one ideal way of founding or one ideal way of managing. But, um, but I think like, I mean, the way that I've thought about it a, a little bit, at least um, 
I've spent the last couple of years more in the managing circle than I have in the other two circles. Uh, and managing, to me, I've found has been just, uh, it's been all about how you like enable and help other people, people grow, right? And if you, if you do that with like, if you do that with your team, and there, there's a lot of ways to do that. There's uh, teaching them new things. There's removing roadblocks so that they can sort of grow and progress on, on their own. There's facilitating you know, relationships between the workers is facilitating communication, right? Uh, but it all kind of stems up in this one thing, which is like, how do you help them uh, grow as a person in the team? And uh, and if you do that, things tend to sort of take care of themselves uh, at the end of the day. Um, versus founding, I think we, we already touched on this. Uh, there's like some very specific special elements uh, to founding that's you know, it's kind of all centered around like this activation energy, right? Founding something requires this immense amount of activation energy to get something going and be, you know, contrarian and and um, and people draw different sources to uh, to to get over that activation energy. I think one we mentioned already was like this authentic connection with something very deep. I've also met great founders who just like. Uh, you know, they like hate the system or something. They've, they've got like some sort of like uh, re rebellion gene in them and like they're not satisfied unless they feel like they're rebellious, right? And uh, uh, and so I think founding is really about, you know, what is this thing that's gonna get you, uh, that's gonna, where you draw this activation energy from. And um, leading up, like if I was truly honest, like I, I think I'm still figuring that out for myself of like what the right, what the right leadership uh, style is for me. I think at HubSpot, you know, there was two excellent leaders there and two founders, uh, Dharma Shaw and, and, and Brian Halligan. And, and both, you know, they, what they really focus on is like how do they make the people around them, you know, look amazing. Uh, and like that, and they've, honestly, they've said that like multiple times is like how do you, how do you make them be successful and look successful? Uh, and, uh, and, and that's what they've really focused on at HubSpot, and that's really uh, sort of what's worked for them. And, and they've done that in different ways in terms of specifically like how they set the vision, how they set the culture, uh, <laughs> basically setting up like all these operating systems that let you know, these, this group of really talented people do some like really amazing things. Mm -hmm. so, um, but it's definitely a, it's a hard thing to decouple from one another for sure. Right, right. I know many of you uh, want to know his gross secrets and all of those. I think this is important because I think it really, this conversation um, helps frame, I think, how you think about the bigger picture of what you're doing. Um, you know, speaking about sort of bringing the success out of the people you're working with, whether it be leadership or directly managing some of their time or even getting a spark to create the business, uh, there's a certain amount of accountability and uh, you know maybe autonomy, especially in the Bay Area, with knowledge work of how do you how do you bring these elements uh, together? And I know as part of your system thinking with some of the the, the tactics you use, this comes up quite a bit as as far as you know the accountability and autonomy piece. Maybe speak a little bit to that because I know a lot of people here, entrepreneurs, are working in businesses where they're sort of driving agendas or trying to create impact in their business. Yeah, I mean I think it's certainly one of the balance. A balance. I mean, this was one of the principles on our team was that we very much set up a, sorry, a system that uh, uh, gave a lot of people uh, a lot of autonomy over, you know, decisions and what they were doing. Uh, uh, but at the end of the day, we also held the team extremely accountable, not just, you know, to me as the manager, but to each other. And, uh, and 
it's, uh, and so I think autonomy is like this really important thing. Uh, there's been all of these, this research on, you know, what actually motivates and drives people to do their best work and, um, and uh, uh, purpose was, is one um, and uh, sort of self-progression and, and uh, is another one. Uh, and I think autonomy was the third. I think those are the three. I might be misquoting that, but, uh, uh, and the reason is, I mean, it's just basic human need. We don't want to feel like robots taking orders, right? Uh, but at the same time, for a company and the team to kind of do their best work, there needs to be a certain number of things in place that, uh, and so like on our team, we had uh, a very specific uh, system on like how we made decisions, like how we compared like one growth idea experiment to another growth experiment, right? And, uh, and that's really important because uh, for a a couple things, I think it's, you know, everybody has to have sort of an apples to apples language of like what they're talking about and how they make decisions to kind of move very efficiently. And then part of that system is then how do you measure it and hold people accountable to it. Uh, and, uh, and, so, um, and so what I always said with my team is like we look for ways to enable as much autonomy to let you make uh, the, you know, <laughs> the decisions, uh, uh, but we have this common language that we speak and you got to know at the end of the day that not only you, but everybody else is going to be held accountable to these things. And, uh, and all, all of those things have to be uh, kind of working together. Otherwise, you end up you know, with uh, a lot of friction, a lot of inefficiency, uh, a lot of frustration between team members. And, uh, and, and that's just what kills companies and teams and right. great products. So. Right. Yeah, and I think this is important as a concept because growth, the name implies there is no repetition of just the same. It, the, the definition of it is it's constant change, right? Because so much change. Right. So you so have to have change. a system in place for that to occur. And if Yeah, and unfortunately I think that's where most people sort of miss the mark, right? And we can get into the whole conversation of like is growth hacking like this legit thing and and, and, and sort of at the end of the day it's uh, and the reason that like the term growth hacking has been basically bastardized is is that uh, ninety percent of what's out there is just people kind of rehashing the same old stuff, copying and pasting <laughs> tactics. And when you look at the the best people, the people who are doing the best work at you know, Facebook and LinkedIn and Wealthfront and uh, all, all these great guys, it's um, it's not about that at all. It's about it's like a system of of how I solve a specific type. A, a specific type of problem, which is a growth problem, uh, um, rather than kind of looking at uh, copying and paste, you know, this kind of solution from outside uh, place. And so, like to look forward, you kind of like need these systems in place on on how do you how do you solve these problems for your situation and your like unique combination of variables. Uh, and uh, and so, like there's. And so our team very much focused on process and systems uh, a lot uh, around like, once again, like how do we approach specific types of problems? Uh, how do we solve those problems? How do we test those problems, right? And, um, and, uh, and it's funny, like we've had these systems for all of these other areas of, of work before, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, uh, the you know, waterfall approach in development or Kanban or whatever, like every, every company has a system for like financial planning and budgeting. Why don't we have a system for how to solve and test growth problems, right? Like that's probably one of the most important things. And, uh, and so, yeah, so you look at these, these teams, the best growth teams out there, they have just this very systemat systematic, repetitive 
uh, way to, uh, to you know solve these like unique problems in a massively in accelerating changing environment. So what you're saying is you can't grow just by watching 30 minute sitcoms and trying to figure out uh, what the next tactic is to apply, right? I so, mean, my job would be much easier. Yeah, that's that was, <laughs> everybody's job would be much easier. So yeah. on the growth side of things, um, there's a lot of I think analogies to design because design is a it's been around for a long time. Obviously, growth as a concept is, you know, probably been, you know, since man's existence is a, is a topic in a business as it relates to driving something in the business. It's very new. Like design is taking on some of that, and there's this rejuvenation of like how design can play a role. So I know growth as a concept uh, is also something. Um, and we were talking a little bit before. Uh, I think organizations sometimes just lop it on, you know, as this thing that should add value. Uh, but it really isn't integrated into the business in a way that creates that value. Um, I'm curious, I know in, in order to have that battle, that fight for what is good, um, our <laughs> mantra here is, is design for people. People mm -hmm. are the center part of the design equation. Obviously, you can't always be in the people realm when you're trying to fight an organization to solve a particular problem, but the gist and all goes back to the people. And I know you have uh, said with growth is that it all has to go back to retention if you don't have retention, then all of the things that you're doing kind of go away, mm -hmm. or at least they disappear over time. Um, are there any other truisms that you hold on to to, to try and reinforce concepts of, of growth in a business? There are things that uh, you know businesses really need to, at least if they can't get it in the system and the organization, hold on to these sort of core ideas of, of growth? So I mean, like retention comes first is one. I think the second one we've talked a lot about is is it's much more about like a process to approach and solve uh, growth problems versus uh, like basically just how do I uh, implement all of these tactics from somewhere else. But I think the third and, and the, the thing that's kind of uh, like I get ninety percent of the questions that come to me from teams that are trying to implement growth into their organization are actually like organizational and team issues. And the reason is is if we like rewound, rewound a little bit and talked about just growth as a, a concept and why it's emerged is that uh, you know at least in the digital world, especially in the software space, we've had like all of these changes. Um, things like the lines between product and marketing are blurring. Uh, you know, we uh, a consumer doesn't look at uh, you know a an experience from a company in sort of these siloed uh, these siloed ways of like marketing product and then sales, right? It's like one cohesive experience to them, and um, you've got that going on. You've got uh, the access to data sort of increasing. You've got marketing becoming more technical and quantitative, right? Like you got all you have all of these changes, right? And so. Uh, the reason growth kind of emerged as a concept was just that we kind of needed a new word and a new way to sort of approach these problems because of all of these foundational changes. Facebook was kind of the first one. And it, it seems that a way to really solve these problems is not to think about uh, this is an engineering problem or this is a product problem or this is a design problem or this is a marketing problem. It's actually like like, okay, let's put the problem first and then back into what is the combination of skill sets that we need to solve this problem. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, that's like 80% engineering and 20% marketing, and, uh, and sometimes that ratio differs. And so you look at the best growth teams, it's kind of this mixture of all of these skill sets, engineers, designers, marketers, right, and uh, uh, working very tightly and cohesively together. And, it, and to me, a lot of ways, it's like, 
uh, it's like what you have in the earliest stages of a company, right? When you only have like five to ten people, you're kind of these skill sets are forced to merge, right, and work. And that's why it's so efficient. You make so much progress. And then as a company grows and grows, all of a sudden we get in this mentality of like, well, we've got to put the engineering team over here and the marketing team over here, and you end up with like all of these silos and communication issues and all this kind of. It's just it's crazy to me. Uh, and so, but you end up with growth as like these really kind of cross-functional teams. Now, that's a big problem for most organizations, right? Because it, like growth as a concept sounds amazing. It's like, who doesn't want to grow? And of course, so the CEO is like, yeah, let's do it, right? All the executives are like, do it. You put somebody in charge of growth, and then they come to the table and like, well, I'm going to hire an engineer to my team. I'm going to hire a designer team. And all of a sudden, you've got the VP of engineering being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, <laughs> engineers aren't supposed to go on any other team but my team. And like, you, you've got all these... It just it's very like counterculture to how we've set up and thought about uh, thought about like a lot of these organizations. You end up with like a lot of people feeling like they're merging on their territory, and so the biggest problem facing the methodology and the mentality right now is that companies just have these like team and people and integration issues, and and unfortunately at the end of the day, the the solution isn't okay. Like let's actually try to implement this in the right way. It's like, well, we're just going to strip these all these pieces away. Uh, well, engineers aren't going to go on the team. And designers aren't going to go on the team. And what it ends up just being is like, uh, you know, like uh, basically the same old marketing team with a new name on it and right. doing the same old things. And right. uh, so a lot of this at the end, growth as a concept is much less about tactics. And it's much more about team and methodology and approach to these problems in the face of all of these foundational changes that software and the internet and the world of data have brought to us. Right. And, uh, and you know, so I think it'll just a lot gets confused in that. Yeah, no, I can see, like, it, design also faces this because, you know, Industrial Revolution created this productionalized approach. So I'm kind of curious a little bit on this because, uh, and I run into the same problem in, in trying to drive a, a design agendas is you uh, basically, you're trying to undo one productionalized system that creates one result based on a set of groups, and you're saying we need cross-functional teams, but isn't that in the end you're trying to create a different system that produces a consistent result? Uh, but perhaps maybe what is that? Is, is there a magic ingredient there that these companies need to latch on to to figure out, like, how do you do it? I mean, the methods are one part. but That's a lot for an organization just to take in and say, well, we're going to change based on these broader concepts, right? It, it is a lot. It is a lot. And that's why I think most established larger companies are going to fail at integrating this. And uh, um, I mean, I even saw it at my couple of years of HubSpot. It was, I mean, it was a lot of friction to change the sort of mentality and our approach on the way to do things there. And uh, that was with them, you know, fully bought in from sort of day <coughs> one. And uh, I see other companies just kind of going through the same challenge, but it's an opportunity at the same time for smaller companies to really kind of embrace this approach. Sure. Uh, and so, it, once again, it's a lot, it's, it's much less, you know, there's some like other dynamics in here, right, which is, uh, you know, so like, so another common challenge is, is like uh, a growth leader saying, well, I'm going to go hire an engineer, and then the VP of engineering comes along and says, well, like, that engineer you're hiring doesn't fit our mold of engineers. And, well, like, yeah, like, that's the point, uh, right? <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, it, 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 it 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 stem it kind of comes and is like well the VP engineer said that's not a good engineer and it's like no actually I'm just looking for a different set of DNA from an engineer than you're looking 
for on that side of the equation. And, but anyways, like the, these examples, it's, it's a lot like just like cultural and, uh, and team things. So, you, so it's very hard uh, for an established an existing company that has an existing way of doing things to uh, sort of embrace this, uh, sort of really sort of embrace this methodology and integrate it into a way that it works as well as they stay true to themselves. Because if they don't stay true to themselves either, then that it fails in both uh, ends of the ends of the ends of the spectrum. So right. it's very it's very difficult. So let's let's talk about things that I think uh, we'll get some questions in a little bit. I love it. I'm gonna get them uh, seven more minutes. How about that? We'll get you. Uh, I'm gonna give you the first question actually. Uh, the uh, the topic here for a lot of people is okay. So great, I gotta grow something, but growing usually means there's constraints, and constraints. Let's get to the brass tacks. It usually comes down to money, right? In order to implement growth strategies, you have to have some amount of money, either time, which is your money, or, or time. Yeah. So I'm curious. Uh, you've been in both kind of uh, mentalities of of sort of organically trying to grow something with maybe not a lot of capital, and then being infused with lots of capital where expectations of growth are magnified. Um, I'm curious, just maybe talk a little bit about that for, for people that are you know, trying to get something going and maybe how their time is useful versus yeah. sort of investment of dollars in that. Uh, well, I mean, I think the, I think the biggest thing to realize is that you will always have constraints. I mean, I just I just spent two years at a, at a company that went public with a billion and a half market cap. And, <laughs> I still was massively constrained by something, whether it was people, time, or money. So the constraints never go away. And so what you actually have to get, you, it's less thinking about that. It is, it is much thinking about uh, how, do you, how do you get really, really good at answering the question of like, what is the most impactful thing that I can work on right now, given my limited set of resources, right? Uh, you gotta get. You just gotta nail that question uh, as a team of like how you think about that, and um, and you see all these common mistakes over time. Like the the most people like take the cop out approach, and they're like, well, I don't know the answer to that question. That question causes a lot of stress because that means I gotta leave a bunch of fires burning over here to focus on this one thing. And then they're like, well, I'm just gonna try a bunch of everything, right? And so the the common answer is I'm just gonna scatter shot my my time or my money across all of these things and hope like one of them works out and that ends up ten, it tends to be the worst way to solve this this problem and this question uh, and so um, and so whether you're a small startup with like uh, with no money right uh, it's basically you know answering that question is like how do you sort of constrain the you know how do you basically constrain the the problem and the question or the target audience down to a set of things that is uh, that is manageable, right? And um, but what, what I mean by that is, uh, so my friend Justin Justin Maris has this great concept of like the bullseye approach, which is like, out of anybody's like target market or set of things that they could do to grow, it's like, uh, it's it looks like a bullseye. It's uh, this con concentric set of circles, and uh, the 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 solving the challenge is all about like how do you strip away the outside sections of the circle and get to like. The, the, the very absolute center, start there, right? Uh, and then layer on the concentric circles over time, right? And so that might be narrowing down your target audience, narrowing down the channels, really figuring out who you're, like the absolute core set of your target audience, where they live, where they spend their times, and interjecting your way into that path. And that might be a bunch of manual set of things, like the whole like do things that don't scale, right? Uh, it might be more efficient ways, it kind of depends, but for a second there, I thought you were talking about design, but you're talking about growth. Very, very similar in nature in that. Well, the funny thing is, I think a lot of these, 
a lot of these mentalities actually have just uh, like how to solve big problems. Solving big problems, whether it's a design problem or an engineering problem or a growth problem, all share the same things, which is like how do you break the problem down into small enough pieces where it becomes manageable and actionable, right? Mm -hmm. And so we do this on the metric side too, like focus on retention. A lot of people come to me and say, well, how do I improve my retention? I'm like, well, retention's a big thing, right? Like, well, let's, first let's slice and dice it. Let's look at one week retention and then your one month retention and then your long-term retention. That's one way to slice it. And right. then, then we find out what that, out of those three things, what's the biggest problem? Now let's narrow it, let's slice it down into uh, uh, like basically segmenting it by like user source and like all these other things and just breaking it down into enough pieces where it's finally like you figure out this thing where it's like, oh, like, I have a bunch of ideas how to fix this. It's directly impactful. Let me start there, and then let me start layering back out uh, um, those concentric circles uh, uh, again. But they all share the same thing, which is how right. do you get really good at figuring out how to break down problems into manageable pieces and manageable. solve anything. Yeah. So irrespective of the money, it's it's making the problem smaller. And so speaking to the the retention component, which is a significant part of just why would you grow if you can't retain a customer, right? Because you're gonna it's it's very painful. Uh, I know you have uh, specific uh, things that you do in that first week, or that first week has a big impact on sort of what happens in your cohorts. And um, perhaps for this audience, I know some people are very growth-oriented, uh, maybe speak a little bit to um, things they could take away today as it relates to, okay, what could you do if you have a product and just thinking about what onboarding things or things you could do in that one week to go kind of look at and investigate to see if you can make some immediate changes to address that sort of um, component. I know that's a still a huge topic. Yeah, itself, yeah. Look, but, I mean, there, I don't think there's a magical answer here, and probably things that you guys hear every single day, which is uh, so. So the reason, so whether it's first day or first week or first month, uh, you kind of have to map it to sort of the natural usage behavior of like the problem you're solving, right? So, so like a game, which is trying, or like a social network, which is trying to establish a daily habit, you're going to want to look at that first day for a product that is focused on professionals. Or where they might engage in a week, uh, it might be that first week that you're looking at. But the common connection between, uh, no matter what the time frame is, is that the reason that that the, the onboard, what most people call onboarding or activation, is so impactful is because the psychology of the user is that they're forming an opinion. Uh, and and the interesting thing is, if you frame it that way, you think about well, why is that so important? And the answer is, is because. As humans, once we form an opinion, we rarely change that opinion. <laughs> and, uh, and so if you don't capture them there, uh, it's really hard to change their opinion afterwards. And, um, and so, so it tends to be like every percentage improvement you make in that first day or first week ends up having a massive impact across like your whole retention curve. Now, things you can do to figure out how to improve it, uh, it's, it's pretty, you know, I mean, the most impactful thing you can do is is isolate uh, the segment of users that drop off within that initial time period, connect with them in a very like personal one-on-one -on -one way. Like I would send one-on-one -on -one emails to this segment of users and just literally answer, ask the question, I noticed you tried the product, you didn't come back, why? Right, like just leave it super open-ended, right? Like don't try to like give them a multiple choice or anything. Let them describe the problem in their own language, right? And then engage them in that language and try to Get more details out of them, but typically, if you do that enough, you end up establishing like a number of patterns of like the why, and then you've got to combine that with 
you know, your own intuition with, you know, a bunch of ideas and how you can address sort of that why. And so for our last product I worked on, Sidekick, um, I have an example on the web. It's a case study that you guys can go watch. But it, Sidekick was this product that was, uh, it was an email plugin and uh, uh, gave you all these, like, additional capabilities around your email. And we had uh, these people that would in, go through the whole installation process and send one email and then stop. And we had no idea why, and, and we literally asked them, we're like, well, why did you only send one email with it? And the most common piece of language is, well, I didn't have time to figure out how to set it up. We're like, what? That makes no, that makes no sense. Well, you, you, you already have it set up. You don't need to figure anything else out, right? Uh, and so we, uh, but, but, but we narrowed in on that piece of language, and we were like, well, maybe it's the, like, the first screen that they see after setting it up. And we iterated on that, and that didn't work. Uh, and we went back to the drawing board, and we showed a lot of the people who dropped off a lot of these variations. And they're like, well, I don't, they're like, I still don't understand it. Like, what do I have to set up here? And what we realized was there was this total disconnect with their psychology, which was we talked about an email plugin on the front page. We had them install an email plugin, and then we, we were showing them a web application page, right? And so there was this disconnect. And, and so at that one moment, we were like, OK, let's like not show them the web application. Let's just tell them to go email. And that had like plus 10% improvement. Uh, and we just iterated on that and kept going. So it's really about how do you tap into this why and this user <laughs> psychology, and then just just throw out a bunch of tests to figure out and like kind of narrow in on what that solution is as efficiently as possible. Awesome. Just one last piece here. So just to help the audience and maybe understanding success to failure of sending and reaching out to people, how many do you have to get to to get a response and what seems appropriate? So it's interesting, like if you if you make it if you make it personal, right? If you in it in by personal I mean it's not that much work. You basically just, you know, uh, export a list of emails of users and then set up some you know, Excel script with your email and insert their first name and ans answer the question why. Like, you know, we would get 40 to 50% response rates on these emails. And so depending on if you're a B2B SaaS company, how much volume you kind of got going in, you, uh, you know, probably by answer response like 20 to 25, the patterns start to merge very, very, very clearly. Now, they describe the problems in different language, which is actually very useful, but they all kind of tend to center around like three or four things uh, for a given, for a given uh, you know, for like a given problem area. So you actually don't need that much if, you know, the, the, the problem is, is people will export a list, like put it in MailChimp, blast it to them. They feel like they're getting like a promotional email. And no, like, like try to make it look personal and feel genuine that you really want to know their opinion, right? right. If you do that. People will respond all day long. It's kind of surprising. So, right. uh, so the main takeaway here is email your customer and ask them why. Yeah, I, like I look, I like I know that. And don't don't make it about you. Why don't you like me? Yeah, <laughs> don't like, start there. I, like I hope you guys don't walk out of here like, wow, that was a waste of time coming to this thing. <laughs> but like, uh, but but legit, like that's the starting point for figuring out. You know, once again, like most people think about growth too complicated. The two foundational things, your tools, are figuring out your user psychology. And then layering, that's your qualitative point of view on the problem or the solution. And then your quantitative point of view on the problem or solution is your model. And that's actually just putting things in an Excel spreadsheet and saying, well, if I actually do improve this, does this actually have an impact? And it's, a sh it's shocking to me that how many people don't actually do that. They're just like, well, I think this is going to have a massive impact, and so I'm going to go do it. And then you're like, well, no, like, let me show you in this Excel spreadsheet how little of an impact this will actually have over right. time. And, 
it, and you know, it's amazing how many ideas don't actually get through those two filters. So yeah, I think, uh, and just the last point here is just I think the similarities between design and growth is a lot of reasons why I think people don't do those things. There's a lot of rejection. I mean, you're you're failing most of the time if oh, you yeah. put it into context. So, so right? it's one of the hardest parts about working on growth is like you need this grit and this mentality of being okay with not only with with rejection but having the grit to uh, uh, like detach yourselves from your own ideas, right? Because uh, people get very attached to their ideas. And Why do you start, not like my product? Why? Yeah, yeah, and then they start <laughs> rationalizing it and like all that kind of stuff. And and uh, and yeah, you just like it, it's it's literally one of the pieces of DNA that we look for uh, that we look for on the team that uh, the growth team at HubSpot was that they they had these two qualities of this this grit and being able to attach themselves to the ideas. But it's very hard. Like it's, it's very very hard to work on a job where like Maybe like eighty percent of what you try actually doesn't work, but but that's not the right way to look at it either. The right way to look at it is if I learn something from this, it's actually a success, right? Uh, and and if you reframe it that way, then you're not failing eighty percent of the time. You're just learning eighty percent of the time, right. and that's a totally different mentality. Totally right? different, yeah. yeah. So uh, maybe last word here. Uh, what, uh, what are you up to next, or how can people follow you, or how do they learn about what, what you're working on? Yeah, so, uh, I'm, so I'm going to announce in a few weeks, early April. If you're interested, just uh, subscribe to my blog at coelevate.com. Uh, it's roughly in the professional edu education space, but uh, more details coming out really soon. So Awesome. So we're going to open up to some questions here. I just want to give you a hand for that. That's great. Awesome stuff. Before we jump in, I know, I know some people ask what Zurb is. So Zurb is a product design company. So I know all of you guys have gotten either email from us, and you can subscribe to these updates and let other people know about them. We put a lot of uh, energy into these to bring people in that have unique ideas and can share them. So ZurbSoapbox.com um, is, is where to go. So uh, a lot of people also ask us, why do we do these things? So much like uh, Brian's inquisitiveness and curiosity, Zurb Soapbox is about bringing conversations um, that are relevant to changing the way people design connected products and services. So when we think about design, we think about, okay, there's growth as part of this. There's engineering that's part of it. And it's, again, in that mixture of the gray matter space that matters the most when you're having success. So we encourage people to come in and talk and share their ideas. So um, if you have uh, questions about uh, our, uh, our products and stuff, uh, you can ask uh, Daniel over there. He's the gentleman over there, or uh, John, who is in the blue shirt uh, back here, uh, that can talk to you about what we do. So, all right, I guarantee Chris, the first question, Chris, what do you have for Mr. Brian? I mean, I'm, I'm a fan. Thanks. <laughs> I follow your blog, etc. Uh, and I completely agree on the be as as possible and organize the team around the solving problem. Uh, I guess uh, my question is about how do you make that effective? sense that, uh, I mean, you feel like you're 50 people, for example, in a team, uh, you cannot put all 50 people in the same team. Oh, right. You need, you need to break it down. So you don't break it down by roles. How do you break it down? If you have a special product that is everything is interconnected. By problems or programs, right? So like, I think that's like, it just like how, you know, you, you, every organization you can break it down and it has a certain set of problems that need to be solved at any given time, right? And, uh, you start with those problems first, and then ask the question: Okay, what are the skill sets that we need uh, to answer? Or to and and those problems like it's like Amazon, obviously, like the 
they popularized the rule of the 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 uh, the pizza size teams, like a team shouldn't be larger than like two large pizzas or something like that, or be able to eat two large pizzas, something like that. And uh, and so like if you if you look at that problem and you say, well, we need this many people to solve it, and it's more than that, then it means like you need to break the problem down even more. But it's all about like how do you start with the problem first, and then uh, and then you know basically pull from your from your pool of different skill sets to to solve that problem. Now there's some problems that are long and everlasting like uh and 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 might be like pure engineering right like maybe some scaling infrastructure problem it might be all engineers right uh but uh uh and so you you certainly have those those set of problems but uh a lot of problems require sort of a mixture of those of the right skill sets working very very closely together so all right, couple, couple. Couple more, you uh, we're gonna get over here. You'll come up, you can ask more questions right after. I love it, I love it. Uh, Mike. Basically, I'd like to take your growth and break it up into two parts. One is growth where you are growing a company rather than coming up with new projects and which project to work on. And both these problems have been solved many years ago. I don't say how long ago. I've been around a long time. Uh, basically, your uh, growth can be based on profitability and how old jobs you work on are all based on expected value. So if you broke up the entire project and figured out which of the projects do I want to work on, what you do is you quiz everybody and you figure out how far can you get and what's the success rate and what's the probability of each step of the project. And then if you do the, uh, the, the numbers, you wind up with expected value for any of the projects you're going to work on. But you've got to do it that way. And that's something you do it classically, and it's been around for over 30 years. So you go to some of the classic books on it, you'll figure out which projects to work on without trying to play a guessing game. You've got to put an expected value. Yeah, look at I'm guessing look. that's been around since cavemen. It's like if I try and kill something <laughs> enough times, you well, like a lot of these, A lot of the foundation of these methodologies have... But books published on exactly how to structure it so you can find out what's the best projects to work on. Yeah, look at it. Oh. The growth of a company based on yeah so I'm not I'm, that organizational like methodology or structure is certainly not a is not is not growth uh, I'm extrapolating from what you see from growth teams the emerging the growth teams of these more cross-functional things to probably a broader trend that we'll see. But I agree, a lot of these things have been around for a very long time. Look, the process we used that I've published a lot of material on about how to solve growth problems is like 70% the scientific method. I mean, how long has that been around, right? But it's funny how, you know, in this day, in this digital age, we kind of, we, we get this distracted with the senseless, you know, the just like the media basically sensationalizing like all these like tactics or like solutions or unicorns or like the Airbnb Craigslist growth act that's the answer for everything and, and we lose sight of like actually there's these very foundational ways and systems to solve these problems and that's what we should really be focusing on uh, yeah all right one more one more could you uh, speak a little bit towards the Sorry, sorry, answer that. Service versus selling a product. Sure. Rewarding 
they're selling great engineers, but at the end of the day, there's nothing tangible you can point at and say, this is exactly what I'm selling. So is your, uh, sorry, is the question how, how to, the difference on how to grow between those two things? Um, so I'll, I'll admit, I, like pretty much all of my work has been more in like the product space than than the service space. So I'm probably not, to be honest, the, the like the best person to uh, to answer this. But um, I think like uh, there's I don't know I don't I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know what the right answer is to that question. Um, my guess is at the foundation there's still a lot of same things, which is like one of the basic questions of growth is like, how does one set of customers lead to the next set of customers, right? Uh, so like in viral cases, right, that it's very, very obvious, right? Uh, in sales cases, it's basically you hire salespeople, they become efficient, profitable, you pump that profit back in to hire more salespeople. Uh, in the services case, my guess is how does one set of projects and one set of work, how do you display that in a way and get that in front of people that it leads to your next set of projects, right? But the, the absolute details, I'm actually not, I'm not sure because I just, uh, I would rather not give you a false answer than I just don't know the space that well, so. All right, so I think you'll be available for just some questions after so you guys can come up here and ask some questions, but I want to give you a big hand uh, for spending time with you. And before you ask questions, I need to get a selfie. <laughs> <laughs>